Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today we are taking a look at Messianic Theology with Dr. Joshua Jipp, Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. It's available. Just follow the link below. So, Dr. Jipp, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here, Dennis. So, to get started, can you give us a, a brief uh, background, uh, the motivation, what inspired you uh, to write this book? Yeah. In brief, it started um, maybe six, seven years ago when I started on a project on Paul and was exploring the question of whether the Greek word Christos, often translated as just Christ um, in our New Testaments, but whether it was just a a name, sort of like the last name for Jesus, you know, he's first name Jesus, second name Christ, or if it actually was communicating something more than that, that he is the Messiah, the Messiah of Yahweh that's spoken of in the Old Testament um, and all kinds of Jewish literature. Um, I wrote a book arguing that it was the case, that it was more, this is a title. Jesus is not just, um, a, you know, the, the Christ is another name, but that he is God's Messiah, anointed, his king. Um, and I argued that with respect to Paul. But I started to think that actually the entire New Testament makes a lot of good sense in terms of understanding one of, not its only, but one of its central themes being um, originating out of basically the Christ, early Christian confession, Jesus is the Messiah. So from Matthew to Revelation, one of the things that all of these New Testament texts agree upon is that Jesus is the Messiah of Yahweh, the anointed one. And so I wanted to write a book sort of showing how um, each New Testament text uh, in its own sort of creative theological way was expanding on what it means that Jesus is God's anointed or God's Messiah. And before we get into the scriptures that inform your theology, what was the contemporary view or views amongst uh, Jewish teachers of the time of Christ? Yeah, it would be it would be hard to say that there, you know, here is sort of like one standard view. But um, by and large, I think we can start with um, the word Christos as being sort of a shorthand abbreviation for the uh, the anointed of Yahweh or the anointed of the Lord. So the old, you know, first century, um, many Jewish texts would have understood that basically this communicated uh, a depiction of a figure that's spoken of, for example, originating in 2 Samuel 7 and then going throughout the Psalms where God makes promise to the house of David, promises to the house of David that there's going to be um, his household and will even be one from his household who will be, we could, in colloquial terms, say God's right-hand person, the, the agent, the mediator, the, the, the earthly representative through whom God is going to enact his covenantal and kingdom purposes to rule the world, bless the world, and bring his purposes to, um, to, to their accomplishment. All right, and we'll, as we go, you'll have an opportunity to distinguish more between what, uh, Jesus's view of Messiah compared to what people were expecting sure, at the time in right. terms of power and yeah, violence. Ways it might have been surprising, absolutely. Yep. All right, so could you go into some depth then about uh, your view of the Old Testament? Which particular um, scriptures uh, you think are essential for understanding uh, Messiah? I think, yeah, there's a lot that I could say, but let me just give maybe two that really stand out. Second um, Samuel 7 is 12 through 14 in particular is really key where um, uh, uh, Nathan, the prophet is speaking to David, right? And says, right, I am going to raise a promise to David. I am going to raise up a kingdom, right? Or establish my kingdom through you and through your seed, Right, your seed or your offspring that's going to come from right David and his household, right, is going to be. Uh, God says, "I'm going to be a father to him. He's going to be a son for me to me." Okay, so in Second Samuel seven, and you get it reaffirmed in First Chronicles seventeen, you have basically right the Old Testament taking shape in a way that God is going to use the house of David and the descendants of David, particularly. 
an anointed or a king that is going to, as I said before, rule and enact God's purposes. Um, there's a lot of other texts we could look at, but maybe the Psalter, you know, Israel Psalms, right, are maybe one of the best places to look for some of this, you know, Jewish or Old Testament messianic theology. So you get things like, right, the uh, in Psalm 1, right, there is an emphasis on love of wisdom and love of Torah, God's law. And then Psalm 2, there's a promise that basically there is going to be a messianic um, anointed of the Lord. The language, I think it's in verse 6 or verse 7, Christos is used there in the Greek text, the, you know, the Messiah of the Lord, who's going to enact God's purposes. And he's basically going to be one that loves God's law and he loves wisdom, right? And throughout the Psalter, you actually have a depiction of this, uh, this person like David or David speaking Psalms as God's anointed, um, uh, as one who is righteous, as one who loves God, as one who is also surprisingly at times persecuted. He's suffering as the wicked are, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, trying to assault him, so on and so forth. Um, let me just say one more. There's a variety of these, you know, Psalm 72, <laughs> I'll, I'll maybe say a couple more. Psalm 72 is beautiful depiction where it's basically a prayer uh, for David's son Solomon, that there will be this ideal ruler that will rule God's people with justice mm. and righteousness. The poor will be blessed by him. It will lead to, you know, cr- um, uh, the blessing for all of the cosmos, uh, the entire world, fertility, so on and so forth. Um, and then ju- truly the last one, Psalm 89. So it begins sort of in the first few verses where they say, God, you promised these amazing promises. He's just quoting Second Samuel 7 here, you know, to our, to our ancestor, David. And then it says, but we look all around us and like, we're in shambles. Jerusalem's been destroyed, right? Where are your promises? Oh God. And so there's this affirmation of hope and longing, right? Even though the Davidic monarchy, there's probably no one sitting on the throne at this time, but this hope and desire that God is going to be faithful to the promises that he made to David in second Samuel seven and raise up this faithful king that will rule over God's people. So even in the time of exile or in the time where you don't have one sitting on the throne, uh, you still have um, uh, Israelites or Jews that are praying the Psalms, right? And, re- and, and, and expecting and hoping and longing for a day when God will enact um, the fulfillment of these promises that, that, he, that he made to them. So um, I could go on, but those are just a few of the places in the Old Testament that I would, I would want to highlight with a couple of minutes at least. All right, and we'll get to Isaiah 52 and 53 when we're looking at the crucifixion and resurrection. And mm-hmm. All right, great. Now, um, throughout the New Testament, then, uh, you're obviously, there's a lot to say about um, the Messianic theology as you understand it. What are the key scriptures for you there? I mean, well, to some extent, it's all of them. <laughs> it's, you know, it's Matthew to, Revel- to, to Revelation. Um, it's, uh, this, one of the things that I, you know, if I go back to your original question, why did I write the book or what motivated me? What, to some extent, there was an element of why as Christians, do we read these texts? What, you know, we've got 27 documents in our new Testament. What it's not hard to find differences. It's not hard to find diversity. I mean, you know, we have four different gospels in fact, right. With, within our canon that, are giving us a depiction of one figure, Jesus, um, but are also telling their story in different ways. So one of the questions, you know, that I, or one of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, if we're asking why read these 27 texts, what unifies them? I mean, I think we could say a variety of different, you'd have a variety of different responses, but one of them is they all agree with the early Christian confession, Jesus is the Christ, right? So Matthew 1, 1, right, begins basically with God's people having sort of been in exile, and it recounts the in the genealogy 1, 1 through 17, basically a long list of these Israelite and Jewish kings, right, uh, that, and, and when, in many ways, right, uh, telling the story of Israel as a story of sin and exile and longed for restoration. A lot of those kings are not good kings, for example, right, um, centering upon the one who is the son of David, right? So son of David, the descendant of David, hopefully already even in the first 10 minutes that will ring bells of 2 Samuel 7. 
uh, or the Gospel of Luke, right, that begins with the angel, angel Gabriel coming uh, to Mary and saying, uh, the, chi- the child that you have, um, that you are carrying right now, he is the one who will sit on David's throne and rule over God's people forever. Or you could look at the book of Acts, where when the uh, people say, are you drunk with wine, when there's the, uh, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit, or they're trying to make sense of it, and Peter's go-to texts are the Psalms of David to basically say, David in Psalm 16, and in a variety of other Psalms, looked forward to right this one that would be seated to the right hand of God and would give the Spirit. And he's quoting Psalm 16, Psalm 132, Psalm 110, right? I could keep going and just sort of like say, you know, what are the texts that I'm looking at? They're basically places in the New Testament from Matthew all the way to the end of Revelation, where you have some of the most theologically important, um, uh, you know, aspects of our New Testament texts that are using Jewish messianism or Old Testament depictions of the Christ to explain the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. So I hope, I hope that, uh, in a nutshell, um, uh, makes some sense to you. But Okay, good. And could you say a brief word about when New Testament writers take scriptures from the Old Testament that are not messianic, but then they make them messianic? Mm. Do they even have the right to do that? Uh, do you have an exa- any example that kind of comes to mind in terms of where you... Um, uh no. Um I would say I mean most of most of my understanding would be that they are if we're using the for me at least how I use the language of messianic I don't necessarily mean any important um Old Testament text that the New Testament author uses, right? So a good example of this could be Isaiah 53 which um there's a lot of debate in terms of is that a messianic text within the old within the old testament is it or is the is the background more mosaic is it an ideal prophet uh is some have argued that it, it that it is davidic most of my argument is made within the new testament with respect to specific texts um and and here we're talking about second samuel 7 or um Ezekiel 34 and the expectation for a Davidic shepherd or Amos 9 and the restoration of Israel through the house of David or, you know, a variety of different Psalms. Um, My method is more to look very specifically at these texts that are arguably messianic within their own context. So I don't, you know, people might look at my book and say, well, why, why don't you have a more of a role for Isaiah 53? It does show up in a few places uh, or why don't you talk more about the um, greater prophet than Moses that Deuteronomy 18 talks about? Fair question. I'm more trying to make the argument with respect to specifically messianic texts, at, which is a handful of these oracles centering on the house of David that usually use the language of Messiah within them. All righty. And so um, you spent a lot of time in a couple of different chapters on the the life of Christ, incarnation, death, resurrection, um, both in chapters on Christology and soteriology, that is salvation. So could you go into some depth here on how you see these different events within the life of Christ relating to Christology and soteriology from a messianic perspective? Yeah, I guess one one way to say it would be this. I don't want to get too laborious in terms of scholarly views on things. Uh, but there's been, a, I think, a really good recent trend in New Testament studies that has argued with names like Richard Bauckham and Larry, Larry Hurtado that the earliest Christology was actually very high Christology. And they've argued that, hey, we see... Um, Jesus of Nazareth doing the kinds of things that Yahweh or the God of Israel is doing in the Old Testament, things oriented towards creation, uh, things oriented towards sovereignty. In other words, things that should be reserved for God alone, um, determining people's final destinies uh, in terms of salvation. And I think that's been actually a really helpful trend. One area, though, where I think sort of like, um, you know, paying a little closer to the messianic texture of the New Testament texts would be in this. 
Where, whereas Bauckham can tend to, or, you know, people talking about Jesus being included with the divine, in the divine identity can tend to almost speak of God and Jesus as um, they're right. I mean, we're getting pushed into Trinitarian language here uh, in terms of, right, the same essence they don't do as good. Uh, they, they're not able uh, often to do as good a job in terms of making distinctions in terms of right difference in ter- with respect to their persons. So I think like the Old Testament with respect to messianic texts, like I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me or places where uh, Psalm 89 is speaking about Yahweh accomplishing his purposes through his firstborn descent through his firstborn um, language that's used for the Davidic king. In some ways, by attending to these texts more closely, I think we're able to see ways in which Jesus is included within the divine identity or is just use the language of he is divine. Um, But we're also able to see ways in which the God, the father and God, the son are actually identified at, or uh, are, are distinguished in terms of they actually are distinct persons. The New Testament isn't exactly using this language. It's obviously will get clarified later in the early church, right, with the high point being Nicaea. But I really think in some ways, you know, the messianic theology is starting to, right, is helping the New Testament, right, both do these two things, if I can state it as simply as possible, draw together father and son as one as one essence but also make distinctions between father and son as distinct persons as well okay and how about uh, the crucifixion then what is what is central about that messianically yeah i mean the 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 cross especially in the gospels it, you would think maybe would be the least messianic you know, sort of event in terms of uh, on the cross, you have one who dies the most shameful, imaginable death um, in many ways is abandoned by everyone except um, the women who are standing at a distance. Uh, uh, you know, you could go on and on and we, it shouldn't be too hard for us to see him as, you know, on the cross as, you know, apparently a victim or as one who is seemingly powerless. Uh, The New Testament texts, however, want us to do something that's really hard, which is to basically see cross and Messiah as together. So whether it's the gospel of Mark, Matthew as well, and you have Jesus basically crying out, um, uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or where are you? Right. He's crying out from a Davidic Psalm in terms of Psalm 22 or in the gospel of Luke. Uh, he's, I think it's Psalm 30 or 31, right? He's quoting the words of David, the King, my God, my, yeah, um, uh, father into your hands, right? I commend my spirit. What's going on to, in other words, is that in, in my understanding is that basically Jesus is playing the role of the Davidic messianic sufferer, of the Psalms. If you've ever read any of these Psalms, right, you you see there's this depiction, surprisingly, of a Davidic king that's saying things like, God, I love you and I trust you, but where are you? I'm being, you know, my mockers are walking by and they're, right, mocking me and they're wagging their tongues at me and they're spitting upon me and, right, they're giving me even sort of, right, this sour wine or whatever it is. Um, they're standing at a distance. Nevertheless, I trust you, God. I affirm you, God. And there's like expectation for vindication on the other side of it. So Jesus, I think for uh, all of the gospel authors is sort of undergoing that role of the messianic Davidic sufferer who seems to be abandoned by God as he suffers as the singular righteous one who is right, but nevertheless is continuing to place his hope and his confidence and his expectation in God to rescue him and to, uh, and to deliver him. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, long story short, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they want us to see basically this is a very ironic depiction of a king, right? This is a surprisingly uh, not what we would expect in terms of a powerful, triumphant, victorious uh, sort of anointed king. But it's one that we shouldn't be surprised by if we've read the Old Testament scriptures, right? As Jesus 
plays this role, embodies it, and on the other side of the cross is vindicated as God uh, resurrects him from the dead. I can't, you know, I'll, try, I'll stop here after this. I know I've gone on for a minute. I can't overemphasize just how important it is for Christians to be familiar with the book of the Psalms, right? To understand, not just to nourish their own spiritual lives, although certainly that, but also to understand the important role it plays with respect to Christology or understanding the identity of Jesus as he's consistently praying these Psalms uh, and the authors of the New Testament are using them in many ways as the categories or the scriptures to make sense, really, of his identity. So you just mentioned uh, the resurrection vindicating Christ. Uh, can you say more about that, how it ties in with everything else? Sure. Um, the New Testament texts, maybe the best way to, um, um, there's so many different passages we could go to here, but again, maybe Acts is one of the, be- the better ones here. Um, so in Acts 2, I referenced this briefly before, but when uh, Peter first quotes Joel 2 to say, the, you know, the speaking in tongues is something that Joel talked about. And then he goes on to say, and furthermore, he's basically going to say, this is where the spirit has come from, right? He goes on then to say, um, the Psalm 16 speaks about someone that was, right, the speaker is saying, saying to God, God, I uh, enjoy delights at your right hand forever. Um, uh, you will never allow your Holy One to undergo corruption or for his body to see decay. And then he goes on to say, David spoke, Peter, this is Peter. Peter says, David spoke those words, but they couldn't have been about David. Why? Because David's tomb is over here right? It's public knowledge. David's dead. His body is undergoing decay. It has seen corruption. So Peter says, right, David was speaking as a prophet. He was speaking as a prophet about the coming Christ, right? And that Christ is the one who has not experienced, the Messiah has not experienced, his body has not experienced decay or corruption. He's the one who is at the right hand of God, as Psalm 110 one says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, right, he's saying that basically Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 are prophecies of Christ's resurrection, where, and in the context, right, he's saying, he's speaking this to a audience in Jerusalem saying, your leaders killed him. And God said, no, like, right, in other words, you're not going to have the last word on this, right? You've crucified him, I will raise him from the dead and exalt him right to my right hand in heaven. So the New Testament works in so much detail with that kind of theology. But at minimum, I guess my response here is to say, right, throughout the book of Acts and in a variety of other places, the resurrection of Christ, that God, God is the Father is the one that resurrects Christ, functions basically as his big yes to Christ and his no to humanity who put him to death and killed him. It's his vindication. This is my son. He is my righteous one. He is the one who through through whom I will accomplish all of my purposes. So the, one of those purposes is soteriology then. How do we move from Christology, Christology related to all that you just said to um, Christ's saving work for us? Right. One of the one of the ways that I emphasize in the book, uh, uh, and it's something that you know, there's a variety of angles I could take in response to this question. But I, one of the main emphases of the book that I do talk about is that there is, um, let me put it this way: Christ's entire life is vicarious in that it is lived for humanity's sake and for our benefit. What I mean by that is sometimes the language of union with Christ or participation in Christ is uh, the language that's spoken of to emphasize this. So let me just give one example of, I could give a couple examples. Let me give one example of what I mean by this. Um, When the New Testament authors speak uh, about Christ, the Messiah, receiving, being anointed by John the Baptist and receiving the Spirit, What's going on? You know, what is going on there? You know, doesn't doesn't Jesus already have the spirit? I mean, if, you know, the preexistent Christ, Father, Son, and Spirit, I mean, was there any, 
what's going on there, right? No, we don't need to engage in any affirmation that Christ was adopted by God or something along those lines. The church fathers had it right in the New Testament texts, I think, give us clues to this. What is going on there is something that's taking place for you and for me and for humanity, right? Christ in his, right, human body, right, receives the spirit of God upon him, right, so that he might basically, to use language that Cyril of Alexandria uses on occasion, and, and Irenaeus, even earlier than that, talks this way, basically preserve the spirit to human nature, right? So that when Christ stands up or Jesus stands up in the Nazareth synagogue uh, in Luke 4 and says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me, right? It goes on to flesh out what that means from Isaiah 58 and 61. Um, that's the same spirit, right, upon the divine human Jesus, that then we are made participants in, that we ourselves also, sh- that we also share in. Um, we could look at a variety of different angles of this, but right, Christ, um, uh, uh, one of the, you know, you know, themes that the New Testament wants to communicate is basically that we're drawn together in a mysterious union with Christ. Um, his uh, messianic identity, his humanity, um, uh, all of it is vicarious for us in terms of basically drawing us together into fellowship, union, participation with him. So that on the one hand, well, I'll just put it this way, so that basically our lives and our stories are to 2000 years later, bear resemblance to his life, right? In terms of we are buried with Christ, we are baptized with Christ, we die with crucified with Christ. We are raised with Christ, even for Paul and at places in Ephesians, we are resurrected and thrones together with Christ. All of that, I would argue, is basically a messianic narrative right? Uh, that then by virtue of him being the Messiah, the one who is simultaneously <clears throat> sharing um, God's representative, but also humanity's representative, is something then that he's able to give to us as a gift that we share in and participate in as well. All right. Very encouraging. All right. So a lot of talk about Christ as Messiah, as king. So if he's king, he's king over his kingdom. Can you define for us your understanding of the kingdom of God? Yeah, I think the kingdom, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. And in some ways, it's, it's a basic question and a question that I always wrestle with, you know, giving sort of like a precise definition to that. I, d- I think of God's kingdom <clears throat> as something that is, on the one hand, we are still awaiting for, waiting for it. We are waiting for Romans, you know, 8, uh, 18 through 25 or so, um, when Basically, this cosmos will give way, as Paul says, the sons of God will be revealed. Um, Creation itself is groaning and longing. Um, Revelation, right, I think depicts this in a way in terms of, uh, you know, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down, the kingdom of earth or the kingdom of God becomes, right, the kingdom then of, of, of man or of humanity, Um, so I think of God's kingdom as basically, it is what, it's so hard to give just a precise definition of this, but it's basically, right, God's ultimate fulfillment of his expectations for humans and this world, where humans will live together in shalom and in peace, they will, they will flourish with one another, you know, with one another, there won't be violence, there won't, you know, there won't be war, there won't be economic injustice, um, you know, any form, racial, any form of, of, of injustice will be there. So that's what I think we're waiting for and expecting for. And I think we get glimmers and foreshadows of that <clears throat> as prophecies in the Old Testament. Psalm 72 is, is as I, I know I've already mentioned it, and a variety of, of other places are, uh, uh, let me go to a different one, Isaiah uh, Isaiah 11, uh, that's speaking about a spirit-anointed Messiah that will bring forth justice and truth, that will lead to seeming, right, the wilderness will give way to flourishing. Um, children will be able, as you probably know, right, the famous passages will be able to live in peace with animals and, you know, deadly vipers, so on and so forth. And I think we get foreshadows of that, right, in the New Testament, um, so that the kingdom is not readily identifiable. I'm, I'm squeamish about saying the kingdom is the church, for example. I'm squeamish about saying at any point, the kingdom is that, 
right? It, I think we get foretastes of it, hopefully in the church. We better see some foretastes of it in the church, but places where basically we see uh, the, the the presence of Jesus leading to good and flourishing and peace and harmony and love for all people, not fully realized, not something that's all, that's necessarily concrete and that we can say, this is the kingdom, but hopefully that makes sense. Anticipations and glimmers of what uh, what we're all longing and waiting and expecting for that's given to us in Revelation 21 and 22. But you also talk about the election of individuals to share in the rule of Christ. What are you getting at there? Um, yeah, there I'm talking about how in the Old Testament, sort of as a context for, for Jewish messianism, we get these places where God is, is saying, essentially, I, I right, have promised that one day I am going to accomplish my purposes by means of a human agent, like Ezekiel 34 is a good example. Sometimes God says, I will just do it. I will be their God. I will wipe out these wicked and unjust um, shepherds that are ruling over my people. I will do it myself. But then at times he says, I will do it by means of sending a righteous shepherd who will reign and rule over them. So God there is basically, we're getting a foretaste in the Old Testament, right? Indicating that he is going to uh, use a human agent to accomplish his purposes. In the New Testament, we would say that, of course, is Jesus. All right. And uh, you write a lot about sanctification, and you talk about sanctification as embodying the character of Jesus. Could you go into more depth about that? Yeah. Um, in my classes at Trinity, I often say things like, um, especially I say this in almost all my classes, but I probably emphasize it the most in the Gospels, that um, Christology and discipleship are integrally, in, they are integrally related. They are united together. So that when Jesus talks about who he is, what he's going to do, there's an expectation that his disciples are going to embody that same kind of character. So it's not a bad hermeneutic to look at the Gospels and say, who is Jesus? How did he live? How did he act? Disciples are also supposed to do that, right? If Jesus was uh, uh, one who embodied practices of humility humility or um, a low disposition when he could have had positions of power, Disciples should be like that, too. If Jesus was one that said, hey, the people on the bottom that are being exploited through those on the top, they need to be cared for and lifted up. We should be. Yeah, it's sort of like in, in a very similar way as Jesus is sort of embodying this messianic identity that I think he finds and understands in part through the Old Testament scriptures. Um, then disciples are also to be a people that are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Maybe the easiest way to say it would be, you know, yeah, I mean, First Peter 2, 21 through 25, when he gives us a portrait of the Messiah uh, who is uh, uh, embracing um, a low disposition for the good of others, we should expect that we should be, you know, following in his same footsteps. And we could flesh that out with more practices, but that at least gives you an idea of what I mean by that. Right. We'll get to that more because um, you talk about dynamics of power within the church and relation to the worldly kingdoms later in the book. Right. Um, so you use the phrase rather than faith in Christ or faith in Messiah, you talk about faith towards Messiah. So um, that's interesting there. What are you trying to get at there? Yeah, I think at times it's uh, probably my uh, squeamishness of connotations that we have in English for the Greek word pistis. So the Greek word pistis, the English word often in our New Testaments is translated as faith. That's not a bad translation, but sometimes the connotations that we have uh, are, are, are what James critiques in James 2 in terms of just an easy believism or I believe this or something. Whereas pistis usually means something that is a little more concrete, I think, in the New Testament. Sometimes it might be translated better. I'm not, you can't, you can't do this and say every time pistis occurs, it means this, because it depends on the context. 
But in some instances, it would be better translated as loyal. Pistis would be translated as loyalty. So one of our responses to the king, um, Matt Bates has written a really great book on this, uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. His word for pistis is allegiance. Um, but the right response toward a, a king that has saved and rescued us is not so much just, okay, I believe it. It's more one of uh, a, a, we reciprocate through loyalty, through trust, through uh, you know uh, the obedience of pistis, the obedience of faith, as as we get in Romans. Revelation talks about this as well in terms of right. There is a group of followers of Jesus that are supposed to maintain the pistis of Jesus or the faith of Jesus Um, might mean to some extent more there. They are not just supposed to have intellectual beliefs about him, but they are to have concrete enacted forms of loyalty uh, to him as they experience the temptation to compromise or as they themselves experience their own suffering. So that's, that's what I mean when I use that language. All right. And what can you say then about messianic theology and how it should uh, inform both our fellowship, take a look at that first, but then also our mission? Mm. I think a lot of believers, we get, we forget about relationships within the church. We focus on ethics or mission, and, but, and so many churches today are shallow in terms of the depth of relationship between believers. So, Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think it's sort of to think, you know, in some ways, the uh, some of the images that are given to us, and I won't give the argument for them being messianic, but um, uh, are, are for our ecclesiology, are we are the body of the Messiah. Um, he is the head who supplies the nourishment and growth, not just to me in my own individual life, but right as Colossians and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 expand upon. Uh, supplies the nourishment and growth for, again, not just my good, but for the good of the entire community. The uh, you know, or in First Corinthians, you know, ten through fourteen or so, um, Paul. Uh, one of the things Paul sometimes gets a bad rap in terms of being you know super inflexible, and at times he can be on certain matters. But one of his ethics in First Corinthians ten through fourteen is just. Do what is good for the group, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the edification of the entire group. There shouldn't mm-hmm. be one body, one, one you know, um, one set of individuals or, you know, group that's flourishing at the expense of the other, right? This is a group identity. Where does that come from? It comes from him saying, this is how Christ lived among us. This is the messianic narrative of basically the Messiah who loved us and gave himself for us, right? Leading even to our main, you know, one of our primary sacraments uh, of the Lord of right the Lord's Supper, which is to be a visible display of our union with the Messiah, but also our unity together as the people of God. And how about mission? Yeah. Uh, so the question would just be how does messianic theology inform our mission? I mean, it would be, again, I would say in some ways, like taking on the same practices of Christ. So let me talk about it in this way with respect to power. Um, our mission is not to um, say we need to sort of reclaim society for, you know, and impose our values on the world around us and do so at all costs, um, no matter you know, the, the, the means justify, or the ends, I mean, excuse me, the ends justify the means. That's not the mission that the New Testament sets forth. We've them. had 1,700 years of experimentation with yeah. Christendom. It's a failed experiment. We, 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 yeah, and probably won't learn, but we need to keep trying and have hope, right? But there's sort of like, the mission is one of being faithful in terms of embodying the practices of Jesus, right? Like, Jesus was one that was about peacemaking. He was one about economic justice and well-being and flourishing for all. Um, we could, you know, he was one uh, uh, who embodied power through the renunciation of his rights and his privileges in order to love and to serve all people. Um, so our mission, right, should be should flow out of that sense of trying to follow who the Messiah is not who maybe we wish the messiah would have been 
or trying to recreate the Messiah in our own image or saying uh, we're doing this for the Messiah, but we know the means aren't quite the means he would use. We need to trust, I think, what he taught us um, in the New Testament. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's all I'll say about, I guess, you know, what what I think our mission would be there. So, All right. And uh, there's other kingdoms, too, besides Christ. So how do we understand the kingdom of Christ, Christ's kingship, in relation to the kingdoms of the, this world? Of course, we've already touched on it, but if you could go into some more depth. Yeah. I mean, part of it is this is the satanic, you know, temptation that, I mean, Satan himself gives to Jesus, right? And Jesus is absolutely one of, I'm, I am not tempted by the, the, king, the power, you know, the, the way that those kingdoms work. So I think one of the things we as Christians need to do is not be necessarily hostile or um, opposed to, I mean, I think God has, you know, given us rulers and governments by and large, hopefully, you know, for the common good, there are times, right, and for order and, uh, uh, and we need to be a non, you know, usually a non-rebellious presence within that. But we need to all be very careful about not taking the standards of the kingdoms of the earth and the world as basically a smaller version of what the kingdom of Christ is really about. The kingdom of Christ is one that subverts, it should subvert, critique, call us to a way of life that will simultaneously try to be a good influence or supportive and pursuing the common good, but at the same time, not uh, not being, but knowing that our way of life will also at times bring us into deep conflict with the way that the kingdoms of the world work. Um, when we fail to sort of make that kind of distinction, then too quickly the church loses its identity, or just becomes a wing of some other branch of politics, or you know, a, a nation state, or something along those lines. So we'll address that in more depth when we look at peacemaking and violence. But uh, within the church, then, uh, the church might not be trying to take over the state or control the government, but um, the church tries, seeks to have its way in, in many different situations. How can you describe the, the church's relationship to power from uh, messianic theology? Yeah, I... I that's so I would probably just reaffirm what I said before um, that the, uh, the 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 main role of the church is to be clear about following the way of Christ. So his practices, uh, you know, gentleness, humility, peacemaking, renunciation of violence, all of these sorts of things that are you know not hard to figure out from a basic reading of the New Testament. Church needs to, in the first instance, understand that that's its role and its task. And at no point, in my view, should it sort of abdicate that role because they think there's a greater good that the, that they need to pursue through the government or through a nation or something along those lines. That said, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, you know, early church fathers flesh this out. Right. Insofar as one is able, one should try to live within society in a non-rebellious way. Right. And the church fathers, I mean, some of the second century apologists are helpful here in terms of their being persecuted uh, as you know Christians. And they're saying, yeah, it's true. We have limits in terms of what we can do as Christians. We're not going to make sacrifices to the emperor. We're not going to attend, you know, the gladiatorial games, things along these lines. But we are deeply good citizens committed to virtues of things like, you know, justice and piety and so on and so forth. We pay our taxes. We don't revolt. We don't, you know, so on and so forth. We have our own way of life. And insofar as you, you know, sort of like don't encroach upon that or engage in mass, right, sort of destruction of other humans' lives, right? We're happy to mind our own business and be a good presence within society. But the church's first right order is to be clear about its identity uh, and its relationship to Christ and following the practices that he teaches us. All right. So let's get even more specific here as we, um, you write about peacemaking and rejection of violence. Um, exactly what do you mean? Are there no uh, exceptions to this or is there a place for just war or do Christians always 
um, to take a, a pacifistic, pacifistic stance. And along with that, then, the other specificity I'm looking at is, okay, if Christians are to not take positions of power, um, can we be elected officials? Where we are, are mayors that have authority over a police force or uh, presidents that are commanders in chief of military forces? Where do we draw the line? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't want to. I'm going to punt a little bit in terms of just saying it goes way outside the the argument of that I'm trying to make here, and it's probably better left for you know ethicists, political theologians. I mean, I, those are really good questions. Um, then the role, you know, that Augustine and, you know, the city of God or the Anabaptists, right. In terms of how they handle, right. These, these questions are, are going to work through this. So they're vitally important. They're just not really a theme or a focus in terms of, right. What, I, what I'm trying to do is sort of say, um, here are what the way of life that the new Testament texts call us to, right. So that whatever decision you give, whether it's just war, whether it's pacifism, you're going to be accountable to these texts and the articulation of some of the themes that I talked about in the past two questions. Um, uh, and, there, and when we make ethical decisions or we're involved in political theology, we're going to be, you know, we're also going to be doing more than just sort of like a strict exegesis of texts. We're going to be right, right, bringing in a lot of things like church history and church tradition other sources that are going to like provide norms or resources for, let me just say resources for how we're going to articulate the answers to the question that you raised, which are really good. They're just, you know, more in the realm of the ethicist or the political theologian than they are uh, a New Testament theology book. All right. Um, You also talk about economic practices that reflect messianic theology. What are your thoughts about that? So uh, it would be, you know, when Paul, uh, when Jesus, for example, is describing his messianic identity uh, as one, for example, who uh, um, waits on tables uh, in Luke 22. Um, he describes basically, you know, our translations may have one who serves. He's saying, like, who's greater? Is it the one who serves or is it the one who sits at the table? Right. And, uh, and the disciples say, well, of course, society says it's the one who sits at the table. And Jesus says, how have I been in your midst? I have been in your midst as one who serves or as one who waits on tables. Um, goes on to then say, you also have that role. Don't be like the Gentiles or the kingdoms of the world, right? That love to use their positions to be called benefactors. They use their possessions, right, to stabilize their power, to increase sort of their reputation, Jesus, again, is saying, I've not been that way. And then he says in verses 28 through 30, and I've given to you a kingdom, right? That you, as the Father has given to me, so I give to you in order that you would eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. What does all this mean? Right, Basically, within the Gospel of Luke and then the second volume, which is Acts of the Apostles, uh, basically what it means to wait on tables is Jesus' form of basically saying, right? Disciples are those that are characterized not by wealthy hoarding of possessions, whether that is literal possessions or that's name and reputation and power that comes mm-hmm. with it. So that the one of the classic examples who embodies what Jesus is teaching is actually Barnabas in Acts 4, uh, 32 through 37, who's one of these wealthy landowners, right? But basically it to be a landowner is a way that you move up, right? You use your society's sort of like um, patron-client scale. You are able to stabilize wealth for yourself. Barnabas basically renounces that, gives it up for the good of the church. So it's a way of life, in other words, that is oriented towards economic well-being and flourishing of other people. Uh, that's not about trying to procure or secure one's own existence by means of uh, hoarding or power or gathering possessions. All right. And that um, also touches on uh, solidarity with the marginalized. You write more about that. Uh, what is significant for us to understand about that? So, right. So it, we are going to, if we're, if we're right, living the Barnabas lifestyle or the way that he lives in terms of Jesus' messianic identity, that means that basically there's an understanding that there are people that are on the bottom of society's 
scale in terms of wealth and power. Uh, and, and we are going to not be viewing the goal of life as sort of like moving closer to those with wealth and power, but rather that we're going to be listening to those and having solidarity, even in terms of our lifestyle with those who are on the margins, just like Jesus did, as he said, he came to do in Luke 4, 16 through 30. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news, gives those categories to the blind, to the oppressed, to bring release, right, basically to the to the captives, right? The disciples follow in Jesus' ministry of release or for uh, uh, shalom, peace, flourishing, uh, not by sort of taking the role of, right, um, uh, bishops that are high, right, and re- powerful and removed from the affairs of those that are low, but by uh, living in proximity to them. So that's that's what I mean in that by that. All right, and to backtrack somewhat, uh, you already touched some on the fathers, but if you could you talk a little more about early fathers and what they said that contributes to messianic theology. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tough question in terms of the New Testament certainly is using a variety of resources to understand the identity of Jesus. But one of the things I found interesting was the way in which, you know, the early church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus are drawing upon texts like Romans 1, 1 through 5, that's talking about God's gospel as one that centers upon in verse 3, a Davidic Messiah, and they they make a lot of it there in verse three, right? That he's incarnate, that he has to, right? The Greek text is right. He uh, uh, is this, you know, the seed of David, right? According to the flesh, katasarka. In other words, he has to wear our flesh. Uh, and then in verse four, right? He is the one from the house of David who is exalt resurrected, exalted at God's right hand, and is able to give forth the Holy Spirit. So one of the things I was struck by was how many of the church fathers, like, look at those verses, Romans 1, 1 through 5, which really do set forth sort of like a messianic identity uh, and story of Jesus to uh, our, you know, as as robust resources for their own theology. And how about um, scholars in later times, medieval or the reformers? What's significant or interesting for you there? Yeah, I pretty much stopped with the church fathers, just in terms of my own limitations of my own expertise. They certainly will, right, develop uh, uh, the, um, you know, threefold offices that you get more prominently in the Reformation period in terms of prophet, priest, and king. Um, uh, uh, And so obviously the king aspect plays, you know, would play, uh, would, would fit nicely with what I'm, with what I'm arguing. Uh, here and one, perhaps I'm not the one to do it, but one perhaps you know could examine the New Testament texts in the way I've done it, you know, using the categories of priest and prophet. So I didn't delve too much, you know, into the uh, you know the threefold um, offices of Christ that you start to be prevalent in the Reformation, but that would be the place that you would look, I think, to sort of see some of the similar themes. And you also mentioned that um, relatively few modern contemporary scholars are writing uh, about messianic theology in the New Testament, and apparently that's one reason you are interested in writing on it. What can you say about the most modern scholarship on this issue? Well, I I would actually say, um, let me nuance that in terms of actually saying, I, I would view myself as a part of a trajectory or a group of those that are reacting to um, what has been prevalent for a while, at least in modern New Testament scholarship, which was basically when, you, you know, the prev- Paul uses Christos 270 times to some people, it's looked as though it just was a name and not a title. Um, and some have said, you know, Paul and the New Testament would have drawn its theology from a Davidic sort of, you know, notion that's filled not doesn't have themes of suffering and renunciation i I think wrongly uh and so paul wouldn't have used right davidic uh sort of um concepts to understand that's what i would say i and then a part of you know some others like matt novinson and matt bates and there are some others that were are sort of reacting against that so there are more out and and i should actually give you know shout outs to people like uh that have maybe prepared some of the way for some of our arguments um, 
to you know people like N.T. Wright um, and a lot of his work in his Christian Origins books. So, um, so I'm not like a lone voice in the wilderness, but have certainly been you know formed and shaped by con- my own contemporaries and then you know people like N.T. Wright, who is a predecessor, but uh, or predecessor, he's at least you know. Um, uh, He's an older scholar than I am, right? I'll just leave it at that. And his works were influential. But yeah, we're reacting in some ways against the notion that Messiah is just basically a name. All right. And some voices within the church and especially outside of the church, perhaps feminist voices or anti-imperialist or critical theory oriented, um, react against the notion of king altogether for different reasons. Um, they're more egalitarian. Um, what would you say to them? Why do you think it's important to, in this contemporary contemporary social situation we find ourselves in, why is it important to see Christ as king? Yeah. First of all, I think that there are very good reasons for feminist scholars, and, I mean, a variety of different scholars. There's a very good reason for me, for all of us, to be careful and nervous about the ways in which messianic theology could be used. So, right, there's a long history of basically the abuse of all kinds of people by certain forms of power that are wrapped up in kings or wrapped up in a, you know, patriarchal society. Um, And so I don't, I don't read them and sort of say, "Ah, it's just, you know, it's just awful or anything like that. I, I view their voices as important and ones that we need to keep listening to. Because the the truth of the matter is New Testament, you know, religious language, New Testament language can often be used in certain ways to harm and oppress people. Um, uh, Now, I don't think the New Testament texts are supposed to do that or are trying to do that, because I think the portrait of the king that they give to us is one that we would say that doesn't fit very closely with what we think of as a king. A king that basically, right, is vindicated by God and does have power, but, right, establishes his kingdom by means of peacemaking, by means of renunciation of violence, by means of attention to those on the marginal, you know, that are marginalized, right? That's not usually what we think of when we think of kings. And so I think it gives to us a a depiction of all, many of our longings for someone like a Psalm 72 king that will rule with peace and justice and righteousness for all people, um, uh, and will do so not as a way to advantage himself, but for the good of others. The new, the old Testament knows that. I mean, the whole, all the scriptures know this. I mean, the, you know, when the Israelites ask for a King, um, you know, there, you know, Samuel, the prophet says to him, this is what he's going to do. And the word that's repeated over and over is take, he's going to take, 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 right. Deuteronomy 17, which gives to us the law of the king, says this is the one thing that Israel's king is supposed to do. Love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, pretty much, by following the Torah. Basically, it's just to be a Torah lover, right? And what he and, and then you get a list of what he's not supposed to do. Deuteronomy 17 has to be related to 1 Samuel um, 8 through 12 in some way, because what he's not supposed to do is take, 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 take. So the Bible itself has a very suspicious view of kings, a, a very suspicious view of kings. Suspicious might be an understatement. The, new, the feminist critics, uh, um, uh, those that are worried about, um, you know, theocracy, things along these lines, they're following in a very, like, biblical trajectory to raise suspicions and concerns. My only response would be to say, basically, yes, that's right, but... Um, the portrait of the kingship of Christ that we get is one that is not of a patriarchal, abusive king that, you know, advantages himself at the expense of others. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really important distinction because otherwise you could just, well, if you're triggered by this word king, then we'll change it to something softer, but then you're missing the whole point of what Jesus is trying to do politically and socially and what he expects of his followers. Right. All right. So uh, you talk about eschatology. You write about waiting for his final enactment of his just rule over creation. So what's fundamental, foundational for developing our eschatology in in light of messianic theology? 
Yeah, it is really, you know, that basically I think there is this day of the Lord, this day of Christ. I'll, I'll be brief with this as I have to run in a minute here. Day of the Lord, day of Christ, right? That is right coming out of an expression from the prophets that whether it's God himself in some of the texts or whether it's his Messiah or agent that will do it, um, that basically uh, there is going to be a day when Christ reigns and rules supreme uh, for the good, for the flourishing of all people. Um, all of us have that longing and that expectation, I think, for peace, for justice, for the well-being of all people in the New Testament uh, in its eschatology when it uses messianic language, I think is tapping into a lot of that longing and hope that we have. All right. Good words. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been talking about messianic theology with Dr. Joshua Jipp, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. It's available. Just follow the link below. Dr. Jip, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for your questions. It's been fun to talk with you, Dennis. All right. Peace to everyone. All right. <laughs>